Welcome to Conversations with Anne Elizabeth, the podcast inspired by my book, I'm a Registered Dietitian, Now What?, where I have the absolute joy to sit back, relax, and have a conversation about nutrition with a variety of people who share their personal story of passion and purpose, especially registered dietitians. Today's conversation is with Lucas Sostrom, a farmer and passionate professional working for Minnesota Dairy Farmers. Don't forget about my birthday book giveaway. I will be giving four I'm a Registered Dietitian Now What books away, one for each week of my birth month because I actually love to give gifts to others on my birthday. I know that sounds weird, but I'd much rather give you a gift than get a gift. Go to my website, annelizabethardy.com and register in the pop-up. Winners will be announced in my personal podcast at the end of the month. Since we are talking dairy today, I have to share my current thing of love that is gnarly pepper custom dip blends. With flavors like veggie and onion, which is actually my favorite, it mixes with any brand of non-fat plain Greek yogurt or full fat, whatever you like, and you can get them in large bags or individual tear packets that are perfect for the individual yogurt cup. I take them to work with me all the time. Head on over to gnarlypepper.com, gnarly, G-N-A-R-L-Y, pepper, P-E-P-P-E-R.com to learn more. Last September, I was fortunate enough to attend a Registered Dietitian Farm Tour Summit, which was hosted by Midwest Dairy and the National Pork Board, and it was held in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was very excited because I had the opportunity to tour both a dairy farm and a pork farm to learn more about farming practices in the Midwest. Part of the tour took me to Showstrom's Farms, a dairy farm in Lafayette, Minnesota, where I met Steve and his son, Lucas. Not only is Lucas a brother, he's a son, a husband, a father, a part-time farmer, the industry relations director for Midwest Dairy, the executive director of the Minnesota Milk Producers Association, and last but not least, a tour guide at Redhead Creamery, which his wife is the president and CEO. Please sit back and enjoy my interesting conversation with Lucas. Well, I'm so excited that you're taking some time with me today and um, just kind of telling me about you and how you got interested in being a farmer yourself and then also your work with Midwest Dairy. So why don't let, let's go back to when you were younger and you were kind of deciding what you were going to be when you grew up. How did you get to wanting to be a farmer? Right. Um, it, uh, I guess backing up, it, it came to me pretty late, um, in, in high school at least. Uh, but it, it all boils down to my grandma. And in high school, I really, um, I went to a small high school and got to do everything. So sports, band, choir, uh, science fair. I was, my, my goal as especially a junior and senior was to, have as many excused absences as possible. And my, my principal <laughs> joke that I, I set the record um, my senior year. And I, I probably came pretty close. Who knows if the record's true. But between FFA and, and 4-H and, and lots of things, I got lots of diverse experiences and got to see a lot of things that uh, a lot of people don't see for their whole career. One example, I mean, it, it seemed really minimal at the time, but I was president of my, my county um for age found, uh, for age federation, which might sound prestigious, but just consider I ran unopposed 
And, um, <laughs> you know, there were four officers for four positions and we ran and we got those positions. However, because I was president at the time that our county extension educator quit and, um, we had to hire a new one, I was on the hiring committee in, in 10th grade. And, um, you know, a lot of my uh, friends now in their 30s still haven't been on uh, hiring committees, depending on the positions they've had. So, um, got to see lots of things and do lots of things connected with agriculture. Um, but I really, really loved biology and um, was going to major in biology with goal of becoming a veterinarian. Uh, after my experience in some biology classes in high school, I just thought, I, I love animals and I like this farm stuff, so I'm definitely going to be a veterinarian. And I was looking at lots and lots of schools uh, in Minnesota, probably about 12. And then I was milking cows with my grandma. Uh, so I grew up on a dairy farm. I should back up. Grew up on a dairy farm uh, in southern Minnesota. And currently, three generations of my family still work together. Uh, my grandparents, my my dad, and my brother all work together, um, keeping it going and doing everything that needs to be done, which, as you can guess, is a 365-day-a-year job. But uh, I was milking with my grandma, and, and she said, well, Lucas, you know, if you go anywhere besides the University of Minnesota, you realize you're going to lose all your all your 4-H and FFA friends because that's our land grant. Like Iowa State is a land grant, so it would be the mm -hmm. place to go if you want to major in animal science or agronomy or or uh, something agricultural in Minnesota. And when that hit me, um, uh, it's it's kind of a, a big thing when you're 18 years old, and the idea that you could at least retain some friends when going to this campus of 60,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> Starting anew, even with a campus of, you know, one to 4,000 people, some of the other smaller schools I looked at, uh, it was a pretty simple choice. Um, and then the first semester of college happened. And uh, let's just say uh, through chemistry class, I decided that, or the university more so decided that I shouldn't be a veterinarian anymore. <laughs> so um, that was fine. I, I met my wife by uh, failing the first class because she did that as well and uh, knew I had to switch careers. And my parents had always been kind of involved in organizations and, and not really involved politically, but in, at least involved in their farm organizations. And that led me to some opportunities uh, to do an internship in Washington, D.C. my sophomore year. And from there, I just realized I, I was in the House Agriculture Committee for six months, literally answering phones, um, making appointments, doing scheduling, uh, attending briefings and writing summaries, but looked around and everybody else on the Agriculture Committee was an intern as well, but they were really hoping to go into education, but unfortunately they had to settle for the agriculture committee or really hoping to go into veterans affairs, but they had to settle for the agriculture committee or, or really hoping to go in something else besides agriculture. Uh, but they got stuck in their words on the agriculture committee and uh, looking around, I realized, Oh man, farmers and, and farm kids don't like doing this stuff. And so that led me to uh, a career, um, in the policy realm, working for farmers and also being a farmer at the same time. My wife and I now live on a, on a second generation farm, but her family as well has been farmers for many, many generations. And, um, she's got a small cheese plant and we have a, a dairy farm. And, uh, because of my job working for farmers, I don't get as much time to do that as sometimes I would like at the 4am. Sometimes it's, it's uh, nice to have the break. But, um, so I get to work for all the dairy farmers in Minnesota for Midwest Dairy and we help them, uh, help them, you know, increase knowledge and 
increase visibility of their product, which is, of course, milk and all the many, many things that come from it. So that's a 30,000 foot overview of, of me and hopefully not too much or too little, but uh, hopefully that makes sense. So how is it? Because you're kind of like you said, you're kind of from the perspective of I, you know, I come from a farming family, but then I also help promote other farms. And when you're going out and spreading the message about dairy foods, what kind of activities do you do throughout the year? Right. Uh, so we have we have a, um, a moderate sized company, actually, because we team up with a number of other states. I believe you're calling me from Iowa today. So yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I was. I was another uh, one of our states calling us from the Midwest or as part of the Midwest dairy family. So basically we stretch from North Dakota and Minnesota all the way down to uh, Illinois, Arkansas and uh, part of Oklahoma. And all the farmers in those states um, are represented by about uh, uh, several dozen staff members. And we do a few things in, in big buckets. And one of them is my job. Like I said, I, I kind of take the farmer's opinions and feedback on what we're doing in every other program and kind of am relaying things back and forth, telling farmers, hey, here's what we're doing. What do you think of that? And then taking that feedback back out to my other teammates and saying, here's what uh, the farmers think of this. My teammates will do things like um, help uh, educate kids in schools on dairy and agriculture more widely help dietitians like those who are probably listening to this podcast and yourself. Ann and I met uh, when we did a, a tour of some farms and it was just great to show you guys around and just, you know, really giving people a taste of uh, what farming is like today and uh, what farmers do and, and more importantly, why they do it. And then also the other kind of big bucket that we work on is, is research. So um, we work with the land grant universities, especially, but uh, also some private entities to create new dairy products or make changes um, to processing to improve all dairy products. And uh, that's our that's our smallest team. There's just two or three people uh, working on that at Midwest Dairy. And then um, the rest of the staff is kind of split, either farmer-focused or um, school and uh, nutritionist-focused. But again, our, our activities would be something like um, at the Minnesota and Iowa State Fairs, um, we we sell dairy products, great tasting dairy products, and um, you know that uh, there is potential to make money there. But uh, also, we just want to make sure people are tasting the best dairy products they can taste. So we we source only the finest quality everything. Uh, in schools, one of our most popular programs that touches schools around the nation is the Fuel Up to Play sixty program. That is. Funded by dairy farmers, along with other people, um, other companies and individuals who've contributed in kind and financial donations. And that's uh, that's probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud about working for dairy farmers because we're uh, so selfless uh, a lot of times. Or I, I feel like my my bosses are all 8000 of them in the region. Um, <laughs> we are uh, basically trying to teach kids how to eat well and be active. And it stops there. And and there's maybe a farm tour or a little dairy education. But the most important thing we're trying to do is we realize selfishly that if we have people who um, are living a good life, you know, getting a great education and um, eating well, that's probably going to turn out to be good customers in the very long term for us. So we, we put aside immediate benefit for dairy farmers and we say, let's just 
give kids a great start. Make sure those who um, aren't eating get something to eat. And uh, make sure those who do have something to eat know their choices and, and know, you know why, the, why the plate looks like it should um, and what the diversity should look like. So that's the high-level overview of, of some of the things we do, but I'm happy to go into other activities as well. What's, what's your favorite activity? What's one thing that you really enjoy doing? So we are about to hit a marathon here in January and February, and then I think there's one more in March. Uh, we have 22 districts in Minnesota, and so we will be doing 22 meetings uh, with those districts, kind of as our annual report. So we get to kind of share. Uh, we operate in a uh, – farmers are, are really, really busy. So we operate on a strategic plan uh, that lasts for usually around three years, and farmers just with the businesses they're managing back home – they can't be involved in every decision. So the staff are really in charge of making good decisions for the dairy farmers. And uh, at that event, we get to do the things that are basically my job, report out on the results of our activities and ask the farmers for uh, what they're doing. And a lot of times we get to hand out fun stuff. Uh, some of the stuff we've worked on that we've either given to kids or, or other uh, people like yourself throughout the year. And the farmers uh, get the taste of, of uh, what we've been doing. So that's probably my most uh, fun event of the year, uh, just seeing the farmers from throughout Minnesota and those meetings go on in all the other states as well. Let's just talk a little bit more about the farmers that you serve. Um, like you said, you have 8,000 bosses, basically. So tell me how that works with uh, your company. You know, when you say that they're your boss, how are they your boss? Right. So um, all the farmers in, in these states and across the nation, actually, uh, pay in um, to Midwest Dairy at, to support, uh, whatever our efforts are and, and our support from, from the law that, that created this, uh, assessment that dairy farmers wanted back when prices were really, really low in the eighties was to build sales and trust of dairy products. And so every farmer, every single farmer, um, pays in to what we call checkoff and that supports our efforts. We have regional um, institutions like Midwest Dairy Association that I mentioned before is in uh, nine and a half states. Uh, and then we also have Dairy Management Inc., which is based in Chicago and kind of runs our, our more national efforts and, and pulls us all together. So every dairy farmer in the country is united in this in, in some way. And um, we're all trying to pull together because, uh, especially with milk, I think, especially with fluid milk, I mean, there's, it, it's a, it's a, item that for a long time people have just been wondering information about. And I think as time goes on, that has spilled over into our cheese and yogurt and will continue to be looked to for other, other dairy products. Just, you know, what, how is this stuff made? Um, milk being usually 48 hours or at the most a week from source to store. I think a lot of people are just like, wow, I'm, I'm you know consuming something that was made that fast and people want to know the story. And I think like I said, over time with cheese and yogurt and ice cream, people are going to want to know more of what's in this. And um, that's a really fun and easy story to tell in dairy because like fluid milk, there's, you know, one ingredient, there's milk, and then there's uh, maybe some, some fortified vitamins that are required by law. Um, and so that makes our, our job really fun and easy to tell people, hey, this is a, a clean label, uh, an easy, fresh choice, and it probably came from a, a relatively local dairy farmer. And I, I like that, yeah, how you mentioned about serving your dairy farmers because they don't have time because they're working so much to produce the product. You're kind of like that in-between person to help the consumer 
hear the story about what the farmers are doing. Right. And, and my job is also to, to give farmers the tools to do that because even though I, I play a farmer part-time, our, our farmers are the experts. They, every farm's different. So, you know, out of those, out of those 8,000 farms I mentioned, we've got the biggest and the smallest every kind of operation you can imagine. And, and we're all pulling in the same way. So we're actually happy to celebrate our differences. And it's really fun when we get in classrooms or in front of groups, if we can bring in two very different farmers, you know, six months or a year apart, because people that have never been to a farm before, um, or never, never talked to a farmer before, maybe talk to the first one and just assume all farmers are this way. And they do it like this. But from Arkansas to uh, the tip of North Dakota and Minnesota, there are very different soils, very different climates, even different cows uh, that are bred for from time to time. And there, that leads farmers to manage things in very different ways, all of which I think are great. And they sell to different people or uh, some make their own products like ourselves. So they've got different needs for whatever they're going for. And that's that's just the biggest thing I always want people to know is I can introduce you to a farm uh, like we got to tour earlier this summer or a farmer, but this is one single way of doing it. And, and nobody is better or worse. Um, people all started in a different spot and are all always trying to improve. And they're always making a great product. Like I think I, I think a lot of people are always concerned about production and, you know, animal safety and that type of stuff. But no matter what, every farmer is doing exactly what they need to do to produce a great product that's safe for consumers. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, not that, not that any product on the shelf is, is bad per se, but there's just so many controls in the milk industry. We, our milk is usually tested seven to 10 times between the time it leaves the farm and uh, when it arrives through the store. And with the, the hundred plus years of science we have in knowing all the components of milk and how it's produced, we thankfully, I mean, have figured out a lot of stuff. A lot of people will look back to the, to the good old days of whatever kind of food they want. Um, but milk, if you read the reports in the early 1900s, we have come a long way. I mean, departments of agriculture didn't say, didn't say the milk was bad in the early 1900s they they said it was you know uh, terrible I, there's a lot of things that happened to people um 100 years ago that we thought was just people getting sick but um it's from our foods having much higher standards all foods and because we know so much about milk because it's uh, so easy to uh, test um we've we've really got like you said a, a really safe product that i feel really confident in and our farmers you know uh, we'll go to the store and buy it just like everybody else. So, um, I, I, I appreciate uh, you bringing that up. It's a, it's a real, like I said, my job, my job is really fun and, and easy at times because we do have a great thing that we put on the table for people. Does cold weather affect milk production? Does it affect the calves? I know that you guys take care of your, of your calves, but how does cold weather affect the cat, the cattle? Yeah, uh, really, really minimally, and and you will see a, a loss in milk production, and and we always say that uh, milk production is the absence of stress. So if you take stress away, cows will give more milk. Now, negative twenty five is not ideal for a cow, but it's not bad either. It's probably like us um, being in that eighty degree humid day. You're not really going to complain about it, but seventy four sure. with a little breeze would 
probably be a little better. It's, it's kind of like that for cows. So their milk production isn't going to be at the highest possible. They love it at 50 degrees with no wind or 60 degrees with no wind. Um, but really below um, 40 negative would be a bad temperature, 40 below zero. Um, so as long as they're above that and we didn't have too much wind, it's not a big deal. And we say that, and I think uh, we say that on the tours on our farm sometimes, or I'll get into a conversation with people and they're like, oh, those poor cows. But yes. uh, dec- decades ago, we used to move our, our calves inside thinking that like human babies, they wanted to be warm all winter, but it had it had neg- or worse effects, I should say. Um, they would get pneumonia and there just wasn't enough airflow and they just don't need it that warm. So we and, and many other dairies uh, like growing our calves in the cold. Um, there's no, not many bacteria that like to survive in that cold. So it's really, really great for calves. Um, and our worst months are actually July and August is, is when uh, calves can get sick because the heat and the humidity are, are much harder on them. But huh. I had the opportunity. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, and you think about it like, oh, is he just... Um, you know, saying the cows are okay because they're they're still walking around, but they're shuddering. I'm at home today now looking out my window and the cows are just relaxing and eating and looking just like they would um, most other days. And uh, I got the opportunity to travel with, to Russia for a previous job. And there are several breeds of domestic Russian cattle that have been there forever, even in Siberia. So. Um, I think that kind of proves that cattle can and, and are meant to live in cold weather because those cows have, yeah, they'll hide in the trees sometimes if it's really, really windy and way, way, way below zero. But those cows have, have not much trouble at all. We do close up our barn to keep it as warm as possible during the summertime. We'll have the curtains down and have it totally open-sided. Uh, during the winter, we'll have those closed up. And a cow is pretty similar to a human. They're about 101 body temperature. So when you have 200 of those in a barn, they they get it warm enough that we don't even need a cover in the middle of our barn. That little section running down the middle of our barn is open. So if it's snowing, uh, there's enough heat generated by the cows that they will evaporate the snow before it even comes down. Even though it's it's still cold in the barn, it's just warm enough to melt snow. So that's just a an example that yeah, the cows the cows are just fine. They'd maybe lose a couple pounds of milk production because they'd rather have it be 30, 40, 50, 60 degrees. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, they're way better than when it's 90 or 100 degrees. That's interesting because I think, you know, as dietitians and I and other people that, you know, hear about treatment of animals and that type of stuff that they would say, oh, look at those poor cows out there. It's freezing and it's so cold. But that's actually is so much better for their health. And I think that's a great message to tell my listeners because, hey, cows like it a little bit cooler than they like it hotter. So that's good to know. Yeah. And, and wind wind and moisture are going to be the only things that change it. So if you don't have a uh, shelter for them uh, from, from above, and if it's really, really windy and you don't have shelter for them from um, the side and they're wet and it's windy, that's when they can get chapped skin and and be really cold but generally speaking you know farmers in this climate have to and and do prepare for that um for milking cows but if the cows weren't milking uh you probably you would probably need even less than that 
um, to, to keep them warm and safe and dry. Hmm. Well, and kind of along those lines of just cows and kind of treatment, I know that you probably get a lot of questions. And I know I get questions because I work in a retail environment, just about milk in general and the, how safe milk is. Just the other day, I had a customer call me and ask me if there was pus in milk. So I think that there's lots of questions out there. And what are some common questions that you might get or dairy farmers might get that are misconceptions, kind of like cows being cold? Sure. Well, um, I, I think, Anne, the, the one you just asked is one that comes up once in a while because some of uh, the people in the world who don't think we should be, um, you know, working with animals and utilizing animals uh, spread that message quite a bit. and. I, I guess I could say it's it's one of those uh, fictitious things that's been taken. Uh, it's taken something way, way, way out of context. Uh, when you drink milk, just like uh, any mammal drinks milk, uh, it's mostly milk, and then there's other stuff in there. There's, uh, generally speaking, there is um, white blood cells that fight disease. And this is true with humans and camels and cows and everybody else. And the higher the level of the white blood cells that are fighting disease to keep the milk clean, the more stress that animal or individual or mammal has. And so our, um, our people, the people who are against us, you know, have, have taken that, that, Oh, there's all these, these other, other things in milk that are, uh, disgusting because they're not milk, so it must be pus because it's the same stuff that's in an infection because it's a white blood cell. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess this <laughs> there's no simple answer because that stuff's naturally there and should be there, but it's stuff that's made to to keep the milk safe and and keep the animal healthy. So um, we do uh, and we are paid on dairy farms for level of those white blood cells, which is called somatic cell count. Somatic means non-sex cell, and uh, um, milk is a sex cell since it's uh, a uh, reproductive um, liquid, of course. And so mm-hmm. farmers are paid for that and pay really close attention to that. And uh, it's kind of interesting, over the past 30 years, our farmers have gotten so good at having quality, safe just great tasting milk and, and it does taste better and it makes more cheese per pound and it makes more butter per pound and it makes better ice cream per pound. The lower you have these levels that the federal government and farmers voluntarily have ratcheted down what's, you know, what's okay. What's, what's good to send. And there's billions and billions and billions of cells in milk, but the, the appropriate level has, has, come down significantly because our practices in the parlor are better or better at cooling our milk faster and having milk trucks come pick up our milk faster just keeps that product really, really high quality. So we're able to strengthen our standards along the way. But so that, that hopefully addresses that one. I mean, it's, it's just a fictitious um, uh, pulling along of taking a word out of context and uh, uh, calling it something that it's not. And I agree with you. And that's why I think it's good that you address that because, you know, to address it also that it is also found in human milk as well, that they don't think of that as being a similar type of reproductive sex kind of fluid. So 
I'm glad that you kind of cleared that up for me because, you know, that's something that I think a lot of dietitians and a lot of nutrition professionals get questions about that. We need, you know, your input and the farmer's input to understand it better to relay that message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. I think I think probably the next most uh, frequent question, at least for people who walk around our farm, are where are the guys? Where are the where are the bulls? <laughs> and um, we we have we have bull calves on our farm for a couple of weeks. And my dad, my I live on my parents-in-law farm, and I grew up on a dairy farm in southern Minnesota, which Ann and others were able to tour. My dad comes every two weeks and and picks them up, all the all the males, all the young bull calves, and they all get raised together uh, as steers uh, for the beef market. And so they live about eighteen months to two years of age, depending on uh, what the market's doing all together on a, on a diet formulated by our nutritionist down by him where there's more space for manure and more space for corn. I live up in dairy country. And so uh, it's very expensive to raise bulls here because there's so many dairy cows uh, everywhere that it just makes more sense to focus on the ladies. And the reason that we don't keep the bulls here is, is two reasons. First uh, we've got 150 or nearly 150 years of breeding and pedigrees watching the ancestry of all these cows um cataloged in our different breed associations so the the holstein association is the one that we adhere to because we have holsteins the black and white cows and so we can trace back to essentially the beginning of america every single uh dad and mom of our cows back to at least 1885 if not before and um, i think that's something that yeah yeah, that's something that just shocks people. I think um, most people have a hard time figuring out who their great great grandparents <laughs> and beyond are. And cows have a calf every two years, or or at least a new generation begins every two years, and then a cow will have a calf every year after that, most likely. So uh, when you're talking 150 years, you know there's there's close to a um, hundred, probably at least generations back in in many of these animals. Uh, that you could find if you wanted to. And that's USDA, yeah, it, it's a it's a big collaboration. And the way it works is farmers voluntarily test their cows once a month. They, they pay for it. It helps them decide on what to do with their cows through a program called the Dairy Herd Improvement Association. And so we have a milk tester come once a month, and they've done all the statistics to figure out. They ask us questions like, when did you last milk? Sometimes you're running late or you're a little early for whatever reason. Maybe you have to go to a basketball game that night or maybe something broke uh, in the morning. So you got started a little late or something like that. So even if you're 30 minutes or an hour off, uh, they've done the, done the statistics so that you can figure out based on what your cow gives today, the likelihood that she's going to make X amount per year. And um, if you're milking two times or three times per day, they figure that out. And that way, you know, are your cows average, above average, or below average? And you can determine that with every single cow. It also determines fat and protein and and the quality, like we talked about before. Then all of those statistics are put together by USDA and um, our our dairy farmer-owned organizations like DHIA, which is the Dairy Herd Improvement Association I just mentioned. And mm-hmm. basically, with a bunch of algorithms and weighting and scoring, we figure out which bulls are the best. And um, we bulls are very dangerous. 
almost every year I'll see a story or multiple stories of some farmer somewhere getting killed by bulls. And some farmers do still use bulls, but they need to be very, very careful uh, in using it because they can get really aggressive. But uh, most farmers, uh, over 80%, use bulls from a genetics company. And so those genetics companies house the bulls together and have special management and and very um, high-class facilities for these bulls to stay clean and protected and keep humans safe. And as we have the first 100 or 200 daughters around the country from any given bull, we'll be able to know, hey, this is, this is the best bull in the country. And then the genetics companies make their prices for the bulls based off that. And in our region of the country, you want, generally speaking, high fat and high protein because that's what makes the cheese, which is the biggest use for milk up in this area, uh, but also uh, is just the value of the components that goes into things like baby formula or the fluid milk that you see at the store or butter. And so people breed for different reasons. Uh, another example is in, in Florida, they don't uh, have much use for cheese because there's so many people and there's so little milk because it's hard to grow, harder to grow cows down there. So they're not paid for protein. They're only paid for butter fat and you don't need uh, protein as much protein for fluid milk. So the people down there would breed their animals for totally different reasons because they're paid for different things. So that's probably the second uh, question, and I know I've, I've rattled on a lot, and I could go on all day about bulls and genetics and the amazing system we've built uh, for the past 150 years, uh, figuring out which bulls are best and then breeding our animals to them, and then also by um, exporting our bulls, making sure that we're not inbreeding our animals, which would happen, of course, if you left them all on the same farm. Um, and it's really, it, it's first of all, it's the reason why we use cows. Uh, cows are easier to breed than most mammals. They have a 18-hour window where you can breed them. And um, the genetic progress has been tracked for so long that we really, truly know of all the bulls tested, who's the who's the best bull in the world right now? And I shouldn't just say the country, the world. And then uh, who's the worst bull in the world? And then you can assign values as such. That's that. See, that's something I didn't, we didn't even talk about that when I came to visit. So that's very interesting that, you know, there is so much research and so much dedicated to finding the healthiest animals to do breeding. Yeah. And, and you mentioned health and, and we've, we've come, we've come so far. So you would expect or scientists expect about 50% of, of an animal's life is going to be based on its genetics. And 50% is going to be based on how you manage that animal, or in other words, trying to keep it as stress-free as possible. Um, And we've done an amazing job on management over the past 50 years, just figured out what cow comfort really means, uh, figured out what um, a lack of stress really means. Like I mentioned already, we thought, well, the smart thing to do is put calves in warm barns during the winter, but actually, no, that's, that's, we figured out the worst thing to do. So we figured out really well how to manage cattle for our different climates around the country. And we figured out how to make milk. Um, we improve about 2% every year. But health is probably the number one thing farmers are focusing on now since we figured out those other two. And so keeping cows free of disease, there's indexes and algorithms and rankings now that even if you, um, the, the best bull in the country usually is based a lot on on fat and protein. But now a lot of farmers think, hey, I want a healthier herd, so I'll sacrifice a little fat and protein and milk 
in exchange for keeping my cows healthier. Uh, that means less veterinary visits. That means uh, less use of medicine. And um, that means uh, just trouble-free cows from beginning of life to end. That's, that's impressive. And that's good for people to know that um, most farmers, almost all farmers are striving to make sure they have the healthiest animal they possibly can on their farm. Yeah, and, and those are, it, it makes sense if you think about it from a genetics aspect. What can you measure really easily? You can measure how tall a cow is. You can measure how wide a cow is. You can measure um, how deep her udder is, which is really, really important, believe it or not. And so we have, in addition to the milk testing, uh, which is also easier to measure, we have about 12% of the country uh, is enrolled in classifying. So the, the classifier comes out and rates the cows. You, you want to rate your best cows and your worst cows, and that also rolls into those genetics. But what's really, really hard to measure when you just walk up and look at a cow is, is she going to be healthy her whole life? So it's taken you know decades and decades of collecting this data to say, these cows are, are more likely to um, have pneumonia, or these cows are uh, more likely to you know, be born with a genetic defect. So it makes sense that it's kind of the last hill to conquer, but uh, I think we're finding more and more. It's probably also the most important one. You just usually can't see it with your eyes. Sure. And you mentioned too about like keeping your cows comfortable and keeping your cows stress-free. So what kind of things are being done to make sure that happens for the cows? Well, every, every farm is different in this category and it depends on climate and what facilities you have. So, and when you came to my parents' farm, they have mattresses and then they bed on top of the mattresses with, with uh, straw. Um, and that's one great way to do it. But my dad's barn was built back in the 70s. And that was at the time that um, we thought that we needed to keep cows a lot warmer than we do. So there we have a lot more fans per, per um, stall because we built the barn to be pretty warm. So we need to keep a lot more air moving like during the summer months so that those cows are, are cool enough staying at that 40 to 50 to 60 degree level. Whereas here um, on the farm where I live, uh, our barn was built in 2002. So we had learned a lot more about cow management by then. And our barn was built to house those cows on sand. And sand is probably the, I, I, some people might argue, but I think most dairy farmers would agree, sand is probably the best bedding for cows. Um, unless you have a perfect pasture that uh, never gets too wet and never gets too dry. But of course, uh, that only lasts for so long. But um, sand is what we use here. And um, the, the bad side of sand is how hard it wears on equipment. It grinds on everything. It, all, of our, all of our equipment and all of our stuff that we use to manage the cow's manure, um, manage the, the really everything. Uh, it's just an extra grittiness. Like imagine if you had sandpaper on your hands 24 hours a day. That's what having sand in our barn is like. Everything just wears out a little faster. So there's trade-offs. Um, and some farmers use straw and some, so, so depending on what the farmer wants, um, I think everybody can figure out how to make their cows the most comfortable, but based on their, on their facility and based on how they want to manage their cows, uh, everybody's different. And like you said, temperature is different and also where you're located and how to make sure the air stays cool and make sure it stays comfortable for the cows. Cause Florida, I'm sure is much different than Minnesota. 
Oh yeah, and and the newest barns in Minnesota, a lot of the newest and and biggest barns in Minnesota are controlling that climate a lot more, and so it's a little more expensive because they have they have cross ventilated barns, so they've got fans running um, almost year round, probably not this time of year, but almost year round to keep the air moving at a nice steady five to eight mile an hour breeze. And when it's, you know, negative 20 outside, it's probably going to be negative five in there. But when it's um, negative or when it's positive 100 outside, it's probably going to be 85 or 90 in there. So they get a lot of benefits hmm. keeping those cows out of the uh, worst stress scenarios. But uh, it's also a big liability because you have extra fans. But for the cows, you are getting rid of the most extreme temperatures, which, of course, you know, the most extreme temperatures are the ones we worried about. Um and in Florida, they've had that system for, for quite some time. And rather than the system I just told you where everything's closed up, they'll have one end of the barn open and lots of sprinklers and, and lots more fans. And they do what's called tunnel ventilated barns and just keep those cows uh, as wet as possible and um, keep the air moving at much, much higher speeds uh, to keep them feeling like they're they're on the beach, even though uh, they're about a hundred miles away from it and it's, it's definitely not a beach all the time, but yeah, every, everybody has different scenarios that they're dealing with and they, I feel farmers do a really good job making the best of those scenarios. Sure. And I think that farmer, like, it's always great to see farmers and how much you guys care about your animals. I mean, you truly love and care for your animals. Like they are your family. And I think that's a, I mean, just seeing you and your your family and your element on your farm, how much you guys care for your animals. Well, thank you. I mean, they they are they are part of us. They are. I mean, let's not mistake. They are our livelihood. So if we don't take care of them, um, they're not going to take care of us. And so uh, I think every farmer knows that and understands that. And that mantra has been around for those hundred fifty years. That. You know, the better you take care of the cows, the better they're going to take care of you and your family. So it just makes sense to live symbiotically. They're not um, they're not seen as a as only an asset that you're trying to get the most out of. Uh, the cow production system is just really amazing. That all we need to do is eliminate stress. Now it's really really hard to do that, but if all we could do is eliminate all of her stress, um, we're going to be better off financially, and that cow is going to be better off health wise. That's that. And the kind of like people, <laughs> if we would eliminate our stress, yeah. think of how better our lives would be. <laughs> right. It's well, hard. and, and when you, when you, right. And when you eliminate cow stress, of course, you're eliminating your own stress because <laughs> if your it's cows true. are stressed out, you as a farmer <laughs> are also stressed out. So it's, it's good for our people and our communities too, to not have angry farmers running around. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's very true. <laughs> when you talked about, uh, you talked about just like how different um, different cows in different areas of the world produce milk for different purposes. Maybe talk about like you said, you know, in the Midwest, you kind of do milk mostly for cheese, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about two thirds of our milk goes for cheese. Okay. So like when you're just for my understanding, when you feed your cows, I'm sure you work you work with a nutritionist for your cows. Your what you feed them, does that determine the proper protein, fat, whatever that cow produces to make cheese and provide the milk for cheese? 
Yeah, again, uh, that's part of that 50% management and 50% genetics thing. So a huge, huge, huge factor in how much protein, how much fat, how much other uh, solids she will have in her milk. So again, milk milk is 87% water most of the time. And the other 13%, the components of that, or if you can increase that 13 to say 14, uh, that is a huge difference in uh, what the cow is providing in terms of efficiency in, in like a cheese plant. And of course, the farmer and the plant's bottom line. So the genetics plays a huge role. On our farm here, uh, we have Holsteins, and they typically give a little more milk than other breeds, but they also have a little less uh, protein and solids uh, as a percentage. But we're not paid for percentages, of course. We're paid for pounds. So the more pounds that our cows put out, the better. Other people prefer jerseys. They would have a higher percentage of fat and protein, but give a little less milk. But each uh, each cow is different. Each herd is different. In other parts of the world, um, they have uh, a different market. So wherever you're sending it to, uh, you might be feeding diff- slightly different, but you also have different feed available. So down in Florida, I've been to a herd that strictly grazes uh, and then gives some grain in the parlor. And then I've, I've been to herds that are, are much like ours, but uh, they probably don't grow the same types of feed, but they we, we grow and, and most farms across the country grow feeds to be mixed in one meal. We call it a total mixed ration. Imagine every single day your breakfast, dinner, and supper being put into a food processor and chopped up so the pieces are the exact same and um, also taste good. That's the goal of our partnership between our nutritionist, our veterinarian, and our feeder who um, are usually on, on farms my size, also just the farmer. Um, and we want every single bite to be the exact same because cows are pretty smart and they'll sort it out if they can figure out that, ooh, that tastes good. But just like humans, oh, usually really? what tastes good. Yeah, usually what tastes good isn't yeah. what's best for them. So, so we have to have a mixture. But the wetness <laughs> of the feed and the smell of the feed does matter. They are smart cookies then if they can pick out <laughs> pick out what they like. <laughs> oh, and... And, you know, that's one of the things that, so I've got a, I've got a toddler at home and, and, um, you know, if she, if she's deciding not to eat what we put in front of her for a couple of days, you can usually tell that, Hey, you know, we're, we're not offering you anything besides apples for the next three days because you need to, you need to eat the good <laughs> stuff. And for cows, it's the same thing. It might be as simple as you haven't chopped your straw. If you had straw in your cow's diet, you haven't chopped your straw short enough or you haven't chopped your hay short enough. And so they're going to sort it out and either uh, eat too much of something or eat too little of something. And you can almost immediately tell in the milk pounds that the cows are giving that, oops, you know, I didn't, I didn't do something right. And that's stressing out her body, even though she's, you know, happy as a clam. Uh, we're stressing out a different part of her body, not her mind. And so it, it matters a lot. Um, in Minnesota, generally speaking, uh, this is a this is a um, rough average because every farm is different depending on the land they have and, and where they are and what they might have available. But generally speaking, about 45% of their diet is going to be corn silage, and that's the entire stock of corn chopped into really little bits. And the day you're making corn silage, which is usually in late August or early September, 
how you chop it through that, it looks kind of like a combine, but it's called a forage harvester. Uh, the day you chop it and how finely you chop that has a huge implication on what your cows are going to eat over the next 12 months and thus what they're going to produce over the next 12 months. Um, we're talking a, a difference of inches and most farmers and, and harvesters have figured out, you know, what that range is that, that works for them. But you, you hear once in a while of, oh shoot, we had the wrong guy in the harvester and that's going to cost us for the next year. Hay hmm. is another 45%. So usually alfalfa or, or grass or a mixture of the two. And, um, that similarly based on how wet you either bale it or pile it, um, you have usually three, four, or five chances at that, so you you have a few more options. But uh, how you harvest that on those days, again, will determine how your cows eat well or not for the next few months. So really, really, really important uh, getting that done correctly. And then the, the last uh, 10 to 15% of is a kind of mineral, vitamin, and grain mixture with soybean meal, corn, and then all the vitamins and minerals cows need to uh, depending on where they are in life, uh, be pregnant or produce milk or a combination of both. And uh, that usually comes from a feed mill or some farms will even have that mill right on site. And again, that is a difference of, in some cases, microns for some of those essential minerals, which I think uh, your audience will understand way more than I do. Um, some of those trace sure. minerals, uh, leaving something out or adding too much of something by mistake. It uh, can cause huge, huge, huge implications and problems uh, for your animals. Um, usually not, when I say huge, I mean, the problem is you've just bought a bin full of that and you're expecting to feed that for the next month. Um, and so five pounds difference per cow makes a huge difference and, and that can happen. Um, but they would, they would normally you know, bounce right back after you replace the feed the next month with the right mixture. So all these, you know, it's, it's probably very, very similar to you to your world. I mean, everything in, in moderation Absolutely. is kind of the human, <laughs> the human mantra that I hear today, but in our world, it's uh, pretty much how precise and how accurate can we get it. And unlike humans, cows do not want variety that stresses them out. They want things the same. So as you're transitioning from one corn silage crop to another, or one hay crop to another, anything you can do to blend them or make them as similar as possible, really, uh, provides the cows less stress and then uh, hopefully of course they're taken care of and and you as a farmer are taken care of that makes i, I kind of feel like us humans should probably eat the same as cows too <laughs> we should probably eat the same thing all the time to put less stress on our bodies it probably we'd probably do better <laughs> well i've got i mean i'm sitting at my computer here and i've got a jar of hershey's kisses so are you as a as a dietitian nutritionist <laughs> recommending if i eat two of these today i should have the same every day i'm i'm all for that you just tell me what to do you know i am you know if two of those a day is if you can just eat two that's amazing <laughs> i would say go for it <laughs> okay good <laughs> most people would probably eat 10 to 15 so if you two a day i think if you enjoy it that's completely reasonable See, yeah, it's it's just like cows. It's it's um, make sure that it's uh, good enough to eat, but make sure we have all the all the essential stuff they actually need in there too. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's I love the fact that you're making it relatable to as humans eat and how we eat, and it's interesting how animals can take on the same stress that our bodies take on when we eat things that we shouldn't. So I like that message. It's a good dietitian message. 
<laughs> well, and, and it also relates back to the question you asked earlier about questions we get a lot. So um, there's also been another rumor spread quite heavily that, you know, cows are, are made to eat grass. And I, I would agree with that to an extent. Um, but then the second part of that rumor is cows shouldn't eat corn. And I think people uh, don't realize that corn is a grass. And um, it's just a grass that, that forms grain at the end of its life, as all grasses do. And so we have a mixture of that, that grain and grass. Um, and I guess the, the most important thing is we have you know, trained nutritionists that have at least a, a bachelor's, if not master's, and PhD working on and figuring out this stuff. So I can't say I'm an expert in cow nutrition, but I can say I listen and we as farmers listen to a lot of experts in cow nutrition and you don't have to feed our diet. You sure can uh, feed grass. Uh, I know there's some farms that feed, feed grass only. There's, um, I'm meaning pasture only and and then just uh, grass hay. Uh, There are a whole set of other, you know, troubles and challenges that you have come with that. Uh, But that if you can overcome them, that's, that's just fine. So, Cows get used to, uh, we always say cows eat really what's ever put in front of them, which is why uh, they can get sick uh, if you as a farmer screw up. So I'm not saying our, our way of feeding is the only way and the right way, but there's just other challenges that come with it uh, if you would change to something totally different than, than the normal, what I would call Midwest diet. In New Zealand, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot more grass only with little grain in the parlor. Um, and that's it's just different and they have different challenges or different vitamins and minerals or different things they need to do to make sure a, a cow who is both pregnant and producing milk uh, stays healthy. And and I think that that's, that's ultimately when it comes down to, it, it comes back to stress. Like you just don't want to stress out your animals. So that includes food. That's a big part of their life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I get really stressed out when, dinner is an hour late so cows uh timing <laughs> timing of food um and what's in it, it I, that's kind of what my life revolves around fortunately or unfortunately is how good my meals are each day uh but cows yes are are the exact same way and speaking of food i mean like when we talk about food and when we talk about just being that's kind of what your role is and you're there to just support your farmers and you're there to supply you know information that sound for consumers and for professionals like dietitians. And I think you're always available to answer questions for people that, you know, especially dietitians who might have professional questions. Like we talked about the grain and talked about corn and eating and also pus in the milk and that type of stuff. Are you available for questions from professionals? Oh, absolutely. And I would, I would provide my uh, email right over the podcast here but i have a really funky last name so feel free to get in touch with ann and and uh she can uh get in touch with me so that you don't have to try to write down my weird last name in my email and yeah we yeah if i if i can't uh if i can't tackle it we also have uh, human dietitians on staff which which hopefully many of your listeners uh know at midwest dairy and our our sister checkoff groups around the country we do a ton of research on dairy. Uh, we do a ton of research in stores, uh, trying to, to make sure we not only um, are making a, a good product, but also positioning it well and, and positioning it well in the diet uh, for all of you guys. So, yeah, whether it's me answering an on-the-farm question or all the way through the food chain uh, when humans are eating it, please, please do uh, reach out. And I think 
you and are a great resource to, to connect us. Absolutely. And I will include your email in my show notes. So you anyone can go there as well. So I appreciate Wonderful. I think we could we could probably talk for days about all just the different things about farming and and maybe we'll have a part two at some point, but I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise in this area for sure. Well, thanks so much. Um and uh, for coming to visit my my home farm along with other dietitians again we had a tour as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast we had a tour at my parents farm and if that's something that interests you please reach out uh we'd love to connect people who are helping humans make decisions on food learn more about their food so if that's something your listeners want to do please please let us know so thanks for taking the time to do that and thanks for the invitation for this hopefully uh i have a I have a master's degree in animal science and sometimes that probably kicks in a little too heavy because I can get really, really excited about this stuff. So thanks for (laughs) humoring me um, with all the, all the science and and my answers. And again, I'm happy to either talk about this stuff with anyone or send you in the right direction so that somebody who knows if I don't can help you. Awesome. Well, I have have a few fun questions for you. We always have to end with fun questions. Awesome. What is your favorite food? What is your favorite food? Well, I'll be a little, um, I'll, I'll uh, break my rule and be a little self-promotional, but my wife makes cheese here on our farm and um, I had it last night. So that's why it's on top of my brain, but we have a whiskey washed Munster and uh, it is, it is getting better and better. And so I like to eat that with chips uh, I don't have it for dinner every night, but or not chips, excuse me, crackers. <laughs> I don't have it for dinner every night, but uh, once in a while that is dinner and it's uh, just excellent. But as far as nor- normal food, I don't think there's um, much better than a uh, filet mignon that's cooked um, mm-hmm. medium rare with a little cheese on top. So that is, uh, those would be my Ooh. my two favorites. And what is the name of your wife's creamery? Oh, now I might get in trouble, but it's, it's redhead creamery. It's, um, she's doing a, she's doing a great job. I like that. That's, I haven't had that one. So I'll have to try that cheese. It sounds good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this might be, this might be an obvious question, but what's your favorite beverage? Favorite beverage? Well, I mean, I, we, we go through. No, it's, it's, um, my question is if I'm going to drop brand names or not. Uh, but the simple answer is we go through a ton of whole milk and I found personally, and I, I, um, know the science or I think the science is changing on this, but personally I grew up with whole milk on the farm and, um, we buy whole milk from the store and it just to me is a lot more filling. So in school and college, I got used to 2% and skim milk, but then when, after my wife and I got married, we decided to try whole milk again. And, um, we, we found we drink a lot less of it. I I used to be able to easily down like four glasses of 2% or skim milk at a sitting. Um, and with whole milk, it's just, it's so filling. And the other thing I was, the reason I was debating on answering is I really like Fairlife, um, their whole milk and their, their, 2% 2% chocolate. So that's got the lactose taken out or almost all the lactose taken out. And then is a little higher protein. And that I find even more uh, filling and satisfying. So those are my two favorite uh, drinks, especially if we keep it to, to dairy. 
focused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did share a glass of wine at dinner. Do you have wine at dinner when we had dinner the that um, time that we were yeah, together? Yeah, no, I love. I mean, yeah. I mean, with cheese, uh, we have so we have a little cheese shop on our farm. So it's really, really tough, but. Sometimes customers won't finish the whole bottle of wine because they'll just order a glass. So it's really, really tough at the end of the day. Sometimes my wife on a Saturday afternoon, she'll bring in like six bottles of wine, but they'll all only have one glass in it. And so we do the deed for all of you uh, to keep prices down. Um, we, we will drink wine with our, with our cheese very often. So no, I do love a good wine and I do love a lot of, we've got a lot of great craft brews here in Minnesota. So I enjoy those as well. What is your favorite color? My favorite color? Um, yeah. It's always, it's always <laughs> just been, it's always just been blue. Um, not sure why, if it's the beautiful skies or just, it's the easy answer, but uh, blue is my favorite color. Blue is your favorite color. What is your, what is your favorite scent or smell? My favorite smell is the the smell I get right now as the Vikings are encroaching their first ever Super Bowl win. So that's probably <laughs> my favorite smell. And just I just love the taste in my mouth, and I I can just I it just um it's everything I've been hoping for since uh, the day I was born. So that's probably my favorite smell. But the the it's it's coming. It's not here yet. The one I actually smell. There's nothing better than fresh cut hay. And, um, if any of you want an opportunity to smell that, uh, you should take it because it's, there's just no other smell like it. It. I will agree with you about the hay. That is a great smell. I, it's, I don't but know. Not it is, the Vikings? You have, not the Vikings. Ah, well, I'm not a big football <laughs> fan, but you know, I totally, oh, okay. I totally support you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will I'll keep it in my mind when it happens. I'll be thinking of you. Hopefully you'll get that win. <laughs> well, thank you. And then my last question for you today is what brings you joy in life? Oh uh, what what really brings me joy is my family and spending time with them. Um whether it's after a, a hard day of work, relaxing with you know like I said, cheese and a glass of wine or just, you know, going bowling or, or playing with my kids. That's, that's the most fun um, thing I do every day and, and that I get to enjoy. So that's an easy one. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. I appreciate you chatting with me today and all your knowledge and have a great rest of your week. Well, thank you. And yes, if, if you or any listeners of the Anne Elizabeth podcast want to contact or continue the conversation in any way, please, please, please let me know. Thanks so much. Lucas's family has a beautiful farm, and it was great to be able to see how his whole family interacts and takes care of the farm all year round. The Showstroms truly love their animals. While we were touring, we learned about the new technology they are using on the farm, how they feed and milk their animals, as well as the different housing locations of the cows. We even got to tour the nursery and love on all the baby calves, which was very fun. Lucas's grandpa and brother were there along with his dad to take care of the animals that day. And it is truly a village that takes care of a farm. 
I really enjoyed my time with Lucas. I actually got to sit down and have dinner with him and get to, get to know him a little bit more on a personal basis. And he is really a great person to reach out to if you ever have any questions about dairy farming. Just to confirm, I am also still eating Jolly Time kettle corn, healthy pop popcorn with rainbow sprinkles this whole month to celebrate my New Year's. If you want to learn more about Jolly Time, go on over to their website, jollytime.com. There's wonderful recipe ideas and you can also get some great coupons. My website, annelizabethrd.com is where you can read my latest weekly wisdom blog posts where I share my current crazy adventures of food, workout music, playlist that's motivating me to get buff right now, a really delicious and real deal recipe or what I love. You can also purchase my book and can find all my previous podcast show notes and links to things we talked about during all my conversations with these amazing people. I would love to connect with you on social media and can be easily found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Anne Elizabeth RD. Remember to be great always, find the joy in each day, and to start a conversation that truly matters.